This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. John's Gospel, chapter 1, and just reading verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. No one in the history of this world has made more of a lasting impact on humanity than our Lord Jesus Christ. H.G. Wells, an historian and a futurist writer, but also an avid atheist, he said, I am an historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess that as a historian, that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. In the words of a popular song today, everything compared to him is like a candle to the sun. In spite of many attempts by atheists over the centuries to deny his very existence or to call him a fabricated, fictional character, there is too much historical evidence to show otherwise. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes of him. Pliny the Younger makes mention of him. Celsus, who was a strong critic of Christianity, and Tychicus all, all confirm that Jesus Christ lived and died on this earth. He just won't go away. And after 2,000 years, he has more followers today than he has ever had in two millenniums. He still fascinates. He still attracts. Even all human history is divided in two because of him. B.C. and A.D., before Christ and Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. Although you will perhaps have noticed increasingly that the term CE is used, which means common era. But actually, it's just another numbering system of the calendar. The Julian and Gregorian calendar. But the irony is, even though that's used, it actually starts at AD 1 in the year of our Lord. And anything before that was before the common era. And anything after that is after the or is in the common era. So you just kind of get away from Christ, even though they use that because you don't have to imply Christ, but you just cannot get away from him. And even it is really truthfully identical because AD 2017 is exactly the same as 2017 CE. It's the same thing. All the centuries that were before were in preparation for his first coming. And all the centuries since are in anticipation of his second coming. He, even as H.G. Wells said, is irrevocably the very center of all history. 
And as somebody has rightly says, history is simply his story. Of course, there are many who will happily concede that Jesus was a good man. Some may even say that he was the best man that ever lived. That he was some kind of prophet or a brilliant communicator or some kind of exemplar, an example. Or that he brought out the very best in our humanity. Or that he was some highly charismatic gifted healer. But the fact is, they will not acknowledge that he was and he is the son of the living God. C.S. Lewis would have none of it. His own inimitable way, he said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up, come up with some patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. But why after 2,000 years is Jesus Christ still a most compelling, attractive figure? Why so controversial? Why are Christians so loved and so loathed by millions around the world today? Consider this just for a moment. In Roman times, Judea was just, just a backwater country that they had conquered and occupied. Just a little insignificant strip of land who had a religion that they knew little about. And by the time Jesus and his disciples came along, they just looked at Jesus' disciples just as a, a breakaway sect of Judaism. Nothing more, nothing less. They had little or no interest in him. But of course we know that in the process of time that the Jews then charged him with, with sedition and blasphemy. And eventually that went to a Roman court. And Pilate gave the order for his execution. And of course he was crucified. As far as that was concerned, nothing unusual. Tens of thousands of people were crucified in Judea in Roman times. Nothing unusual about that. Just another crucifixion. There was two others crucified with him that day. Just a criminal, a common criminal. As far as the Romans and the Jews were concerned, as far as the Jews were concerned, he was just another wannabe Messiah who led people astray for a little while until they dealt with him, as had been others before him. As far as the Romans were concerned, uh, this Jesus of Nazareth and this motley crew of, of ex-fishermen and tax collectors, well, they, they wouldn't even be a footnote in history. 
But we know that wasn't so. We know that just wasn't true. Not only was not just a footnote in history, he made history. In fact, Christianity grew so great and so fast and so mighty that within 50 years of that, there was a Christian church in every major Roman city in the empire. And it is a historical fact that Christianity split the Roman Empire in two. Not bad from a carpenter from Nazareth. Just to let us know that there was something different about Jesus. What else could account for that exponential growth at that time? And even after 2,000 years, it is still growing. Now, regardless of what people say about Islam, Christianity is still the biggest religion in the world today. And it's growing. There's some countries where it's growing much, much faster than others. So why should this carpenter from Nazareth who was born in the stable of the poorest of parentage, why should he have the largest following of any man in all of human history? This is inexplicable. It is without logic or reason, except and until we believe that he is who he said he was, he is the living Son of God, no less. The eternal, self-existing Son of God. So Lewis was absolutely right, wasn't he? Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, Kill him as a demon, follow his feet, call him Lord, but let not us come up with some patronizing nonsense that he was just a great human teacher. He doesn't give us that option. And that's man's dilemma. We have to decide who is Jesus Christ. Our eternal futures depend upon that one question. Our preacher this morning mentioned where Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And notice he didn't say, who do you want me to be? Because lots of people today, they want Jesus to be something of their own making, something of their imagination, something that they feel is comfortable. Yes, make him a prophet. Yes, make him a teacher. Yes, make him a great human being. Yes, make him a sage, a wise man. But do not make him the son of God. That's too far. Because once you make him the son of God, then you've got to do something about the son of God. So Jesus was not merely some philosophic, moralistic sage or prophet. He was and he is the son of God. Not a man who became the son of God, as some false religions teach, but God who became the son of man. Born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, who became the God-man. And so there can be no doubt that Jesus was an historical figure, that he was born a Jew, and he did live for 33-plus years in a place that was to become known as Palestine. That cannot be gainsaid. That is a fact of history that's well proven. And that he died, and that he rose again, according to the scriptures. 
And so Jesus has his place in human history. But Jesus was more than just an historical figure. There's been lots of great historical figures, but that's all they are today, just an historical figure. You can read about them, you can Google them, you can... But with Jesus, it's different. Alistair McGrath, a very perceptive writer, said, it is one thing to say that Jesus died. It is another thing to say that he died for me. To say that Jesus died is an historical event that you're saying. But that he died for me, you're making it a personal experience. And there's a world of difference between those two things. And so Jesus steps out of the pages of history and he occupies a place in our human hearts. And that's what makes him not just true, but relevant. And there's a difference between that which is true and that which is relevant. Example, this pulpit is made of plexiglass. And so it has undergone chemical and mechanical processes to make it into the shape and design that you see here today. And if I was smart enough, which I'm not, and if I knew exactly how it was made, which I don't, and I could spend 30 minutes telling you the processes and how it's done exactly, that all would be true, but would it make any difference to you? It would not be relevant to you. You could care less. You would be bored to tears, probably. Not relevant to you. But Jesus Christ is both true and relevant to each and every one of us who know him as Savior. Who he is and what he has done really matters. It's totally relevant. Our eternal destiny depends upon it tonight. And so thank God for Jesus, his son. Thank God that he sent him to this earth. Thank God that the Holy Spirit drew us to him. Thank God tonight if we can say, I am saved. I am born again of God's spirit. Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. Amen. So he's not just that historical figure He's now our personal Savior. And one of the greatest things that God has ever done for us, I'll be brief tonight, by the way. You'll be glad to hear that. I'm being very good tonight. All right? One of the greatest things that God has done for us is to forgive us. Now, I'm sure you have discovered that forgiveness does not come easily or naturally to us. Some things have been so hard, some things have been done to us, it's been so difficult for us to deal with, it's been so hurtful and harmful that we find it almost impossible to forgive. We don't want to forgive it. We can't find it within ourselves to forgive it. So it's really, really, really hard sometimes to actually forgive. 
And I'm sure all of us at some point or other in our lives, to one degree or other, has struggled with the old issue of forgiveness. Us needing somebody, us having to forgive somebody, or us needing somebody to forgive us. It's not easy. It's difficult. And so, do we ever stop and think for just a moment how difficult it must have been for God to forgive us? Think of all the, the hurt that it's caused God, our sins. Think of how he was angry and grieved in his heart because of our sins. Think of all the commandments that we have broken, God's commandments. Think of all the times when he lovingly and graciously tried to woo us and win us to himself, but we kept rejecting him. Uh, think of the times perhaps we even blasphemed him and blasphemed the name of his own dear son. Think of all those times whenever he, whenever we rejected his, his purpose for our lives, uh, and we wanted to live our own lives, our own way, our own selfish desires, and, and wanted nothing to do with him. That must hurt. <coughs> but the amazing thing is that even though God was rightfully angry and rightfully grieved with us, yet he still loved us. And even though he had found it incredibly difficult to forgive us, yet he was willing to. And he wanted to. Not in any begrudging way. Because sometimes we begrudgingly forgive. But not God. His love for us was so great. And this is what makes it so difficult. This is what makes it so hard for God to forgive us because the penalty and the punishment for our multiple sins would be so great that we could never, ever hope to ever pay for them or be punished enough for them. And he knew that only his son coming and dying on a cross and taking our sins upon himself, that that was the only thing, the only way that we could be truly forgiven. And so the cost of God's forgiveness was incredibly high. It cost him everything. And it cost his son everything. Imagine his innocent, holy, righteous spotless son having to pay in full measure the punishment for every sin we ever committed he had to pay that price and so God forgiving us must have been the hardest thing when you read those statements those seven statements that Jesus made on the cross surely the hardest one and the most profound one Listen, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can understand them forsaken us. We deserved it, but he didn't deserve anything. 
And Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me? What a price. Not only did Jesus pay, but what a price the Father paid to forgive us our sins. And to see his son bear the sins of the world, sin, the thing that God hates, to be poured out fully, that cup to the very last dregs poured out upon his only son. And so when it comes to forgiveness of our sins, the price was incredible. The only thing that probably stops us forgiving is our pride. But for God, he had to give everything. He had to give his all. He had to pay the greatest price. And yet, unbelievably, he did it. How much must he have loved us? 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm speaking tonight about our incomparable Christ. Nothing, we sang it moments ago, nothing can be compared to him. Singing the words of that song a moment ago, I was thinking of this, nothing can be compared to him. Second thing was reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Eden is a story of paradise lost. Adam and Eve, through disobedience and through sin, lost that intimate, personal relationship with God the Father. And in that moment, they became estranged from God, separated, and actually physically removed from that place of intimacy and safety in the garden. Removed even from the very tree of life itself, which was a good thing, by the way. That's another story. But even after that, God yearned for reconciliation because God wants relationship. I don't know why, but he does. Yes, he forgave Adam and Eve. Yes, some animal's life, innocent life, was taken so that those skins of clothes could be put upon them to hide their nakedness, to cover them because of their sin. But forgiveness alone didn't fully reconcile them. The reason I say that is this, because they couldn't get back into the garden. They didn't have, again, that intimate, personal relationship with God the Father. It was gone. Sin had made a barrier 
And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that that barrier was there. And for the most part, men had to come to God, approach God through prescribed ways, through ceremonies and rites and sacrifices and priests and special days, special times, special seasons. The exceptions would be those who, whose faith was accounted unto them for righteousness, where they seemed to have a more intimate relationship with God. But yet God still yearned for reconciliation. Not just forgiveness, but reconciliation. That he could be in relationship again with mankind. And so, God longed for that reconciliation. Not just for a few people, but for all men to be reconciled to himself. That any man, any woman, could have a personal relationship with him. That they wouldn't need a priest. That they wouldn't come with a blood sacrifice. That it wouldn't have to be in a special day or a special time. But they could daily have relationship with him. And of course, only the Lord Jesus Christ and only through his death and his forgiveness, only through him being the door then into God's intimate presence is the only way that man can come. And so our incomparable Christ, he's the only one who can make that way for us. And if only the world could see that and know that, and then they could have a relationship with God. Ephesians 1.16 says that we are accepted in the beloved. It's the only way God accepts us is in the beloved, in his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus. And once we are in the beloved, then we are fully accepted in the beloved. And as I keep reminding you in John 17, John's great prayer for the church, where Jesus prayed and said that the Father loves us as much as he loves his own Son. And that was only possible because we received his Son and believed in his Son by faith. And once we did that, then the Father fully accepted us, and then we can have a relationship with the Father God. And then as believers now, those who have experienced what it is to be reconciled to God, we now have a ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians uh, 5 and 19, it says, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation so every single one of us has a ministry of reconciliation where we can get men and women to be reconciled to God by the word that we say and the word is the gospel it's God's word now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us 
We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For me, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So every single believer has got a ministry of reconciliation. Well, we can reach out to this world with a word of reconciliation to say, hey, you can be reconciled to God. God will receive you and accept you through his son. He paid the price for your sins. And what a message that is. We heard our preacher this morning who goes into the nations. Now, we know this story. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But there's people who's never, ever, ever heard this. There's people in the world today who's never even heard the name Jesus. They don't know what that means. Never once did they ever hear that word. Hard for us to grasp that fact, but it's true. Unreached peoples. And when they get the story in a simpler form that I have told you, obviously it would have to be simpler than that, they grasp it. They grasp the goodness of God, the mercy of God. Because what they worship and who they worship is not like our God. Cruel, vindictive, merciless, fearful in a bad sense. But our God is compassionate and loving and wants to woo men and win men to himself through his son Jesus. Can you say amen? In life generally, estrangement hurts. Families become estranged. Anybody that has ever gone through a relationship that's been estranged and maybe eventually broken up, it's hurtful. It's painful. They say divorce is the second biggest pain other than death of a loved one because it's a kind of a living death. So families become estranged. Communities become estranged. We know that in our country. We have to build walls between our communities. Nations become estranged. That's why we go to war. So estrangement hurts, but reconciliation heals. And God wants to heal hurts and heal families and heal communities and heal nations. That's our God. But it all comes through our incomparable Christ, the one who is beyond compare. <laughs> Let me finish tonight with... I, 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 I don't know who to give the credit for this. There was no name attached to it. But just a, a list of things that, that Christ is. To the artist, Song of Solomon 5.15. To the architect, he is the chief cornerstone, 1 Peter 2.6. To the astronomer, he is the son of righteousness, Malachi 4.2. To the baker, he's the bread of life, John 6.35. To the banker, he's the hidden treasure, Matthew 13.44. To the builder, he is the sure foundation, Isaiah 28, 16. To the carpenter, he is the door, John 10, 7. To the doctor, he is the great physician, Jeremiah 8, 22. To the educator, he's the great teacher, John 3, 2. 
To the engineer, he is the new and living way. Hebrews 10, 20. To the farmer, he is the sower and the Lord of the harvest. Luke 10, 2. To the florist, he's the rose of Sharon. Song of Solomon 2, 1. To the geologist, he's the rock of ages. 1 Corinthians 10, 4. To the horticulturist, he is the true vine. John 15, 1. To the judge, he is the only righteous judge of man. 2 Timothy 4, 8. To the juror, he is the faithful and true witness, Revelation 3.14. To the jeweler, he's the pearl of great price, Matthew 13.46. To the lawyer, he is the counselor, lawgiver, and true advocate, Isaiah 9 and 6. To the newspaper man, he is tidings of great joy, Luke 2.10. To the occultist, he is the light of the eyes, Proverbs 29.13. To the philanthropist, he is the unspeakable gift, 2 Corinthians 9.15. To the philosopher, he is the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1.24. To the preacher, he is the word of God, Revelation 19.13. To the sculptor, he is a living stone, 1 Peter 2.4. To the servant, he is the good master, Matthew 23, 8 and 10. And to the student, he is the incarnate truth, the incarnate truth, 1 John 5.6. To the theologian, he is the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12.2. To the toiler, he is the giver of rest, Matthew eleven twenty eight. To the sinner, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John one twenty nine. To the Christian, he is the Son of the living God, the Savior, the Redeemer, and the living Lord. <laughs> what a Savior. And Sally and I was on holidays. I'll close with this. Uh, you get to look at a lot of old buildings in Italy. And our guide, who was excellent, put the best guide we've ever had in any holiday. I mean, she gave us history lessons, geology lessons, ge geography lessons, every lesson. And a couple of times she showed us old buildings, arch buildings. And she referred a couple of times to the capstone or the keystone, the one right in the center of the arch. And she kept reminding us that that keeps the whole arch together, keeps it from falling. And so at one point when I got her on her own, Sally and I, I said, remember you were telling us about that capstone, that keystone? I said, you know, the apostle Peter talks about that in the Bible. He said that Jesus is the capstone. He's the keystone. He's the chief cornerstone. That's what it is. And I said, you see, when you take Jesus away from Christianity, it all falls down. There's nothing left. He's the very center of it. Ah, she says. That's all she said. She thought, I better not say any more here. This boy will be. <laughs> and he is. Take Christ out of Christianity, there's nothing left. He's the heart of it, isn't he? He's our incomparable Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you tonight that you are the very center, not only of history, you're the center of our lives. Help us, Lord, to keep you at the center. So many times, Lord, our, our center of gravity shifts and changes, but, Lord, we need you in the center for life to be balanced again because you are the chief cornerstone in our lives, and we give you thanks. Lord, bless your servant that was here this morning as he goes to the nations. We thank you for all the great work, Lord, of... RTU and the Ace Evangelists. 
We bless you that all over this world, even today, there's men and women and boys and girls that are coming into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we thank you that your church is growing around the world, and we bless you for that. And we thank you that you are coming back again soon. Lord, the signs are all around us, unmistakable signs. And we thank you, Lord, that soon and very soon we're going to see the King. So we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.